Welcome to Practical Christian Living. Jesus seems to be giving them a warning. I tell you the truth. Every word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but a word against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So he seems to be giving them a warning that there's a line down the road where they could cross, where they could no longer be saved, where salvation wasn't available for them anymore, and they could no longer give their lives to Christ. They could no longer follow him. God is not mocked. He is a discerner of hearts, and he requires that those who seek him seek him with a fervent desire to know and love the one true God. We hope our studies the past few days through Hebrews chapter 6 have helped shed some light on the topic of salvation. But more than that, we pray your commitment to Christ is real and full of passion for our God, who is a father and a best friend. With more out of Hebrews chapter 6, here's Robert Furrow. Hebrews 3.14 says, For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Now let me read that again. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Matthew 24 says those who endure to the end will be saved. So we know we have to finish the race. Now, a Calvinist would say that a genuine Christian is going to finish the race and that anybody who is an apostate is not necessarily a genuine Christian. This speaks to the confidence that we have in our own salvation. A Calvinist is going to say you can never be sure that you are 100% saved. But if you believe in Christ and you are committed to making sure that you stay with him through the remainder of your life, and it's genuine, I believe that you can have 100% confidence that you're saved. They're going to say, well, only time will bear it out, which seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? You've got the perseverance of the saints, that the confidence of our salvation, and then when you push them to the end, how do you know you're not going to walk away? How do you know right now you are genuinely chosen? Because God chooses randomly and doesn't. And we know people who walked with Christ, who at least looked like they did, who were living for him, they thought they were, and then they fell away. There's a very famous pastor. You would know him if I gave you his name. His main assistant for 20 years walked away from God and became an atheist. He says of him, he's Calvinist, he says that he doesn't believe that he was ever saved. So if a person like that can walk away after they've pastored in a church for 20 years and they can walk away and never be saved, how can we know that we are genuinely saved? Because the Bible says, believe on him. Confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So God, through his foreknowledge, knows that we will make a commitment and that we will finish it and those are the ones, I believe, that are genuinely saved. Now listen to this next passage. This is John 10, 27. It says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. The Bible also says that God knows those who are His. So out of every Christian in the world, God knows those who are His. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. 
I and my Father are one. And so we have to endure to the end. But God knows who's going to endure to the end. And those who are going to endure to the end have been given eternal life and they will not lose their salvation. So that's why I say, even though I don't agree with the once saved, always saved position of a Calvinist, I believe that the person who is genuinely saved will be saved to the end. And I think the Bible gives us that confidence. So our key is to make sure that we are genuinely saved. Let's take a look at another example. So Jesus tells a parable of the four soils. Yeah, the first soil, which is a hard heart. The seed lands on it and immediately gets taken away. We know that's an, a non-believer, right? Because just immediately it was gone. The Word of God had no effect on them at all. That happens all the time. We share with people. People come to church, hear a message. You think good, they're here. And then they walk away, they're like, eh, nothing. You know, and you're like, bummer. The second is those that take up a shallow root. So they respond quickly and with great joy. But when the sun comes out, it beats on it and they wither away. So those had some evidence, but it wasn't lasting evidence. If you would have looked at them when they sprouted up quickly, you would go, that person's really saved. But they weren't really saved. Then you have those that are planted among the thorns, among the thistles, the weeds. And the weeds choke out the word of God. Now they go a little bit farther. And then Jesus said that the weeds are the cares and the worries of this world that choke out the word of God. So if you looked back at those, you would say, from the very beginning, you would have said that they were saved. But those who had their root went up quickly were not saved. Neither were those that got choked out by the weeds. But those that were saved were those that had good ground that produced 30, 60 to 100 fold. They produced fruit, right? Sound familiar? So the Bible tells us that we have to produce fruit. They produce fruit. And then that's a revelation that they have made a commitment to Christ. So that I believe that salvation is God working in us. I'm not saying that we have to keep ourselves saved. I'm saying it's by the grace of God, by the power of God, by the strength of God, that we throw our, ourselves on Him, unable to work out our own salvation. We throw ourselves on Him, and because we do that, then God carries us to the end. And that God has made salvation available for everyone, which would be, again, against, against Calvinism. Now, with that in mind, let's come back and take a look at our text. Therefore, leaving the discussion of elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection. What would perfection be? Being perfect. When are we going to be perfect? When we enter into the presence of God. Not laying again the foundation of repentance to dead works. That we wouldn't once again trust on any works to save us. I'm not talking about us going out and, and, and working to be able to be saved. I'm talking about us having fruit in our lives that is a sign that we have genuinely committed our, our lives to Christ. And then it says faith towards God, the doctrines of baptisms, and that's in the plural. Remember that the Jews had not only baptism, but they had washings as well. So he's talking about baptism for a believer and washings under Judaism. If you have to do those, if you don't have to do them, he says, and laying on of hands, which is we lay hands on people to send them out, lay hands on people for them to be healed. In the Old Testament, they laid hands on a goat. Remember the scapegoat? They would lay hands on the scapegoat of the resurrection of the dead. 
So again, that we have been resurrected, that Jesus has been resurrected, that we're going to be in his presence and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened. Sounds like those who are, have been saved, right? But people could come to church and learn and be enlightened and not make a complete commitment. Those who have tasted of the heavenly gifts and become partakers of the Holy Spirit. So again, the word taste is used. So some have said, well, it's tasting of the heavenly gifts, which we would say would be the gifts of the Spirit and partakers of the Holy Spirit, which I think you have to say you're saved in order to be a partaker of the Holy Spirit. And a partaker of the Holy Spirit, then verse five, and having tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, tasted of the word of God and the powers of the ages to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance. Since they crucify again to themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now let me give you an analogy that I think helps us to understand this. In Acts chapter 27, Paul is on a ship. He's been arrested in Jerusalem. He's making his way to Rome. And of course, it's Paul. There's a storm. And the ship is going to be shipwrecked. And Paul hears from God, everyone on this ship is going to be saved. That's a promise from God. Everyone on this ship is going to be saved. And then a little bit of time goes on and the sailors want to get off the ship. They're like, we're not staying with the ship. It's going down. We're going to get off. So Paul goes to, I think it's the centurion, and tells him, if these men get in the boat, not everybody's going to be saved. God had told him everybody in the boat was going to be saved. But now he has a warning. If the men get in this boat, not everybody's going to be saved. And so the captain gave the order and the men did not go in the boat. And God's word to Paul was completely fulfilled. The warning was heeded. So I think the same thing is happening with this text and in our salvation. I think that God knows who are saved. He knows those who are going to endure to the end and that there's a warning here because some are getting ready to offload. Some are like, I'm out. But God gives us a warning. And in that warning, he helps to preserve us until the end. And I think all of the warnings are that way in the book of Hebrews. I believe that this one is a bit stronger because it's saying if you do fall away, then you're, it's going to be impossible to renew you to repentance. Now, why would it be impossible to renew them to repentance? Where is the other place that we know that people cannot be forgiven? So Jesus talked about this when the scribes and Pharisees had seen him do miracles, they should have known that he was the Messiah. He was doing all kinds of Messiah things. And they knew it. In fact, they knew it. They just didn't like the fact that it was Jesus. And they did know. And so then when Jesus cast out a demon, which is really interesting in itself, because in the Old Testament, you never find a demon cast out of anybody. You only find demons cast out in the New Testament. And so here Jesus is, doing something no Old Testament prophet ever did. There's none that was given power over demonic spirits. And Jesus was doing this unique thing and he cast out demons. 
No wonder the scribes and Pharisees said he cast out demons by Beelzebub because it was a sign that he was the Messiah. He is the one. In fact, demons would see him and say, what are you, what are you doing here? What do you have to do with us, O son of God? They would call him who he was. So they were identifying him. The de demonic world was. And they say he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Every word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But every word spoken against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Talk about another passage that is massively misunderstood. So as a youth pastor, I would have the kids that would come to me and they would say, oh, last night I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I was laying in bed. I don't know why I did it. But I knew it couldn't be forgiven and then I blasphemed the Holy Spirit. But that's not what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. It's these people that have a, an immense amount of knowledge. It's these scribes, these Pharisees, these religious leaders that have all of this knowledge of who the Messiah is. And they reject him and they reject him and they reject him. And God gave them a chance to receive them and another chance to receive them. And finally, they go too far. Finally, they cross a line. And then he says, you cannot be forgiven. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What's the, what's the Holy Spirit's job? To bring people to Christ. And so the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, it's like they went too far. And I don't even know that calling, saying that Jesus cast out demons by Beelzebub was the actual crossing the line. Because Jesus seems to be giving them a warning. I tell you the truth. Every word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but a word against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. So he seems to be giving them a warning that there's a line down the road where they could cross, where they could no longer be saved, where salvation wasn't available for them anymore, and they could no longer give their lives to Christ. They could no longer follow him. And somewhere along the line, they crossed it. Because we're going to see this in our study of the book of Luke, that all of a sudden Jesus stops teaching openly. In the beginning of his ministry, he teaches plainly, he teaches openly, but then all of a sudden in the middle, he starts to teach in parables. And it says he didn't teach plainly anymore because that which could be fulfilled, and he quotes an Old Testament passage, that in seeing they would not see, in hearing they would not believe. So he came to a point where he was like, I'm only going to give parables. And, and if we were to talk about what's the what is the reason for parables? A lot of us would go, well, to make things clear. No, the reason of parables was to make things foggy so that only those seeking would really understand. Now, they have that double meaning to them because we have clarity when we're looking at a story, right? But Jesus was hiding the truth from those who weren't seeking. So those who were really seeking, which came later on and said, tell us what this parable means of the, the soils. And then Jesus told them what the parable means from the soils. So they eventually crossed the line and they could no longer be saved. No wonder in John chapter 12, when they are sitting at a table with Jesus and Lazarus, who had been dead for four days and they knew, it says that they sought to, opportunity to kill him, that is Lazarus. Rather than believe in the Messiah, they wanted to get rid of the evidence that Jesus was the Messiah and they tried to kill him instead of believing in him. They wouldn't believe. I would hope that every person here who maybe is a nominal believer or maybe not really a believer, if you knew someone was dead for four days and then they rose from the dead, you would go, okay, Jesus is real. I'm going to follow after him. But they didn't do that because they had crossed the line, which tells us that there is a line you can go 
especially after receiving knowledge, there is a line that you can go where you go too far and you can't come back and repent. And so I think that's what he's talking about here. I think that those of you who are genuinely saved are hanging on to your salvation will be saved in the end. You, you may become an apostate. That happens all the time. No one is saying apostasy can't happen, right? It happens all the time. But what we say about that apostate is different. The once saved, always saved says that he is saved and he's apostate and that proves he was never saved. They're not going to say someone who walks away from Christ and becomes an atheist is still saved. No one says that. Now, we run into people who do. There's a girl that I knew when I was a teenager and I knew she was a Christian and then she's living a life apart from Christ. And so I kind of, approach, you know, talked to her about it. And she says, don't worry about me. You know, I, I've been saved and once saved, always saved. That was my first introduction into it. It was a girl who thought she was okay living apart from God because she got her ticket to heaven. That's when I began to look and go, I'm not really sure that's what it's saying. I got my ticket to heaven, I'm going to make it. And you realize that there is no Calvinist theologian who is going to tell you that you are saved if you are an apostate. They're going to say the fact that you are an apostate, you have gone, First John, you have gone out from us because you were not part of us. So they're going to say you have gone out from us because you were part of us. Those who would look at them and say, well, they're an apostate because they never made a commitment to Christ, which is what I would say. I would say they didn't really have a true commitment to Christ. They might have looked like it, but they never really made a true commitment to Christ. And so when it says it's impossible to renew them to repentance, I think it's, it's like the scribes and Pharisees. These guys have received a lot of information. They're in the church. They look like Christians. They walk like Christians. They talk like Christians. These guys are falling away, but they've never really made a commitment, but they've got all of this information. And there is a line that someone can cross that takes it too far to where now they cannot be renewed to repentance at all. I realize that it talks about them falling away, but there are people who are tares that fall away all the time. And I think that it's saying that they cannot come back to repentance. This is another example of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's the same thing. So then the example makes perfect sense. Verse 7, For if the earth which drinks the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful by him who is cultivated receives a blessing from God. So how do we know that we're saved? By the fruit that comes in our lives. Not by the works that we do, but by the fruit that comes in our lives. We've made a genuine commitment to Christ. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. So if we are bearing thorns and thistles and not real fruit and evidence of our salvation, then we will be burned. So then in verse 9 he says, But beloved, we are confident of a better thing concerning you. So he says to them, I'm, I'm confident that you're going to make a genuine commitment to Christ, that you're not going to cross that line where you can no longer repent. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner, for God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown towards his name. That would be the fruit that's in their lives. And that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. 
that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So we look back in the Old Testament. This is where the, the Hall of Fame is going to come in. We look at the Old Testament. We see these people that endured to the end. We see these people that made it all the way through. And we want to endure the way that they did. And so in verse 13, it says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could not swear by any greater, he swore to himself, saying, Surely, blessings I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. That is, that God promised him that he was going to make it to the end. He patiently endured, which was the evidence that he had been, and he made it to the end. For man indeed swore by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for the end of all disputes. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise, the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. That is, he confirmed it by himself. That by two immutable things, that which is impossible for God to lie, that we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay. Then verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor for the soul. Our souls are anchored in Christ. Christ is our anchor. This, this is an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil. Speaking of the high priest who would go behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, in the rest of this passage, he's talking to us about the work that God did. God swore to himself and God's the one that works salvation out so that we are confident that if we make a real commitment to Christ, that we are going to be saved. But the danger here would be if we're tares, if we don't have a genuine commitment to Christ. So we want to evaluate that as we come to the end of the message. Evaluate whether or not our faith is genuine or whether we, it's, it's possible that we could be a tear. And you can do that often by looking at your fruit, the fruit that's in your life. Is there fruit that is evidence that you've really made a commitment to Christ? Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you for the opportunity that we have to be able to study your word today. And as we take a look at this passage and try to make sense of this warning that's here, Lord, we thank you for your word and your promise to us that you know who are yours, that you draw us to Christ. And Lord, we thank you that we can examine ourselves now to see whether or not we are genuinely in the faith. Lord, we want to make sure that we make a real commitment, that we are not pretend, that we're not tares, that we're not those that grow up quickly and then the sun dries us up or the weeds that choke us out, but those that have made real and genuine commitments to you. And we thank you for the warnings in Scripture that tell us exactly what we need to do, that we would not get in the boats and somehow, Lord, that your word will be true even with these warnings. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse -verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you. And His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. 
our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus south of Palo Verde and I-10 meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living. Do you love Jesus? Do you want to dig deeper in your walk with God? Then you are a great fit for REACH College with enrollment opportunities. To attend as a student or an auditor, the courses challenge you to analyze your way of thinking as you grow in your walk with Jesus. Find out more at thereachcollege.org. That is thereachcollege.org.